Strachan and Bell together. There's Cooper breaking through. A chance now. This will be the fourth ball for Aberdeen. And Cooper puts it in wide. Close by Bishop. Well, suddenly it's become a rout. Of course, when things are going wrong against you, you don't get the breaks of the ball. Cooper in with Stewart. He didn't really know where the ball was, but he got the break. And as you say, it's a schoolboy's dream being able to take your time. Knowing that really, all you've got to do is crack it into the back of the net. Hello and welcome to the Here We Go podcast. This is our first show of 2022 and being such forward looking chaps, uh, of course we're going to spend it looking back at what happened in 2021. Um, because, you know, really after quite a few years of uh, stability at the club, it was uh, 12 months that saw some big changes in the structure and key personnel at Pitaudry. Uh, so Martin, here's how this is going to work. Um, six key moments from 2021. We'll look back at what we said at the time. And then see if we've uh, flip-flopped, changed our minds in anything. So I think the first one has got to be that record-breaking run at the start of the year. A miserable time anyway. Obviously, everyone's thrown back into lockdown at the start of 2021. And the Dons managed to make it even more miserable by going six games. A club record six games without a goal. I mean, some some games it wasn't even like threatening to be a goal. It wasn't even the sort of basic components of a chance that were being created. There was one um, one game with St Mirren, wasn't there? It was finished nil-nil at Pedodri. And I think instead of doing the debrief, we just basically listed what we'd watched on TV for two minutes. And that's frankly been our most talked about podcast over the last 12 months. But here's what we said at the time. Hello and welcome to the debrief for the 20th of February 2021 after Aberdeen won Kilmarnock nil. Martin, let's pause for 30 seconds of celebration here for the fact that we've actually finally scored a goal. Like everybody else across the North East, um, I didn't know what to do with myself for a few minutes there. It, it was just horrendous, wasn't it? It was just, it, it, we just forgot how to be a football team. It was back to the, you know, we, we joke about it, you know, we like to joke about it as podcasts, but it was particularly that St Mirren game as well. We like to joke about you know, the Craig Brown era with no shots and you know, Derek Young as captain and all that kind of stuff. And uh, that's that's basically where we were again, um, like especially from watching it, watching it the way we were as well. It really was an absolute chore. Yeah, it, it just going to a halt. It did, didn't really, is, is the bottom line. It, there was still some functions of that team that were working I thought defensively we, we were still relatively sound hence why a lot of the games finished nil-nil I mean it comes down to the January transfer business and probably in a way what happened in January was probably a sign that chairman was intent on changing manager now we know that obviously there were financial pressures brought about by the fact there were no crowds for, for the whole of the 2021 season but Sam Cosgrove leaves in January and then right at the very last minute we bring in three signings. We bring in Fraser Hornby, Florian Camberry and Callum Hendry. And it was Callum Hendry that obviously got their goal that day against Kilmarnock. But three loan signings against a guy who'd had his critics and obviously has gone on and, and not done very much then in England whatsoever. He needed a long time to, to find his feet up in Scotland. But when he did find his feet, he, you can't deny that he, he scored a decent number of goals for us playing in that centre-forward position. 
but the fact that there was no long-term thinking in that January window, just kind of almost looking back with a bit of hindsight, makes you realise that really the chairman was going to be making a change sooner rather than later. No, I think we could probably all agree the offer was, was probably too good to turn down. You know, in his time down in England, obviously at Birmingham and I think at Shrewsbury now as well, he's really stru- really struggled as well because he's not being given the, the time in the way that he was. You know, McInnes stuck with him for ages and then he had the good spell. He's not going to get that again in his career. You know, a striker is lucky to get that once where, where he's having a dry spell for so long. So um, I think Cosgrove moving out was, was the right thing to do. Uh, you're right to mention the fact that you know, we were struggling, we're playing behind closed doors, there was financial constraints on the team. We were concerned at the time with the names names that come in. You know, Callum Hendry was you know, way down the pecking order at St Johnston. Hornby was one of these guys who you know you hear lots about, lots of promise, but he wasn't. It wasn't working really doing anything in France. Uh, and Camberry was just sort of one of these guys who's a. It's basically it's a bit of a journeyman. I mean, at the time we we probably all suspected that the manager would be leaving. We we probably said every episode that we did, every debrief, every episode we did, that it would be the end of the season. Not not really being given the uh, I think any the right backing or perhaps the late na- the late nature of the names coming in, um, and it was it was a mistake at the time. And it's like you, know, you look back at it now and you just have to say where we finished in the league was probably directly influenced by that. Well, speaking about Dan McInnes leaving, the trigger was finally pulled a couple of days after yet another nil nil draw. This time against Hamilton. There had been a, I don't know what what you want to call it, a botched effort um, way back in January after um, ahead of a big game against Hibs at Easter Road, which we lost 2-0. It seemed that some of the press were briefed that if we weren't going to win that game or get a positive result out of that game, then Derek McInnes was for the chop. But that didn't happen. We got the vote of confidence from the chairman. And I think, yes, Martin, as you say, you're right. We, we kind of all just thought, right, OK, this is it to the end of the season. Let's just knuckle down, see what we can do. It wasn't a completely lost cause in the league at that point, and obviously we still had our fingers crossed for the Scottish Cup. Um, but that decision was finally made, and um, when it came, here's what we thought. Uh, tonight, Aberdeen have um, sacked Dirk McInnes and Tony Doherty after eight years in charge, almost to the day, I think. First of all, Martin, certainly, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling fairly shocked. The chairman only a couple of months ago was determined to give him to the end of the season. It, it's obviously just a, a complete loss of confidence in his ability to turn the ship around. Yeah, they call it the dreaded vote of confidence. and But since then, it's been bad. The team's not performed. There seems to be, I don't know if it's an inability to motivate the players. So yeah, I'm, I'm really, really surprised. You know, this is broken at, what, half past... Half past eight on a on a Monday night, yeah, just um, complete complete out of the blue. To be totally honest, I thought I thought that the board had compl- had tr- truly had complete faith in him. So you know what, Martin, we're going to be Aberdeen fans are going to be discussing this for decades to come. The rights and wrongs and the ins and outs of it, and clearly he's going to there's going to be direct comparisons with the guy that came afterwards. And um, you know, Dermot McInnes' legacy will only shine a little bit brighter if the man who comes afterwards doesn't do such a good job but you know looking back to March it cannot be that much of a surprise that he lost a job his job at that point that was the second time in just over a year that we'd had a long club record equaling or breaking goalless streak 
we were not winning games we should have been winning we were losing games we should have been competitive in ultimately it it was results that cost him his job wasn't it the look at the run that we had prior to that hamilton game and yeah there's a couple of there's a couple of Celtic games in there as well drawn with St Mirren losing losing to Hibs losing to Livingston there was obviously in in January we had the that really embarrassing you know, the hiding we got from Ross County when we lost 4-1 that's what it was it cost him that you know it's there was a group of players there that were still good players that still had lots of ability and I know it's like the, the, the cliche that people will use but I think that you know the, the players had maybe they'd lost the dressing room a little bit um, maybe that maybe the players had, had you know felt that he's going to he was going to be going at the end of the season one thing I think we'll probably never find out, and unless we get to speak to somebody that was in that dressing room, someone who's also willing to talk, because I think that's that's a thing. You know, a lot of them will have a lot of respect for Derek McInnes and will keep the cards close to their chest and won't want to say anything. But I think that when a manager is clearly going to be out at the end of the season, you know, some of the players that perhaps aren't, you know, you know, a hundred percent behind them, the performance levels will drop and they'll you know, they'll perhaps lose interest. The, the run was terrible. The results were terrible. I'm going to say it, still think it was the right right decision to get rid of him. At the time, should have he been given at the end of the season? You can, we can debate this, and we will. We'll be talking about this. You've said so many times, you know, um, it's been 20 years and the Alex Smith wars are still waging. When, when, I'm, when I'm in my six days, there's going to be guys still talking about this, if it was the right thing to get rid of Derek McInnes or not. Um, it's, it's, it's one of these things that's never going to go. No, I'm not looking forward to it myself because you're right. There, there are still some who think that Alex Smith should have got longer, despite the fact he'd taken the the best squad in the country to sixth in the league and knocked out of every cup competition um, at the first time of asking the following season. Why would why should that be acceptable for Aberdeen when it wouldn't have been acceptable for either Rangers or Celtic back then? It just strikes me that people who hold that attitude have swallowed too much of the. Um, Glasgow press propaganda when it comes to Alex Smith. He, he did a good job for a period of time, then he stopped doing a good job. And I think largely much the same applies to Stephen Glass, uh, to not to Stephen Glass, Freudian slip there, to Derek McInnes. I think, again, the reason that people keep bringing up the Alex Smith time and the sacking was because of what really subsequently happened afterwards. But I mean, immediately after Alex Smith, you got Willie Miller, who was good for a couple of years, but then you enter a real downturn for for a long, long spell. Let's hope we're not heading for that again after the, the change that came this uh, back in March. We went out on a bit of a limb, I suppose. It wasn't that much of a limb, let's be honest. That, um, But I think the day after uh, Derek McKenna's sacking, we recorded our full podcast um, as opposed to just our instant reaction. And um, we had, um, I think, now we had a couple of guests on, but we also had um, Derek Ray talking about the, the structure of putting a director of football in place, something which subsequently came to fruition. And we had Jason Longshore, who is an Atlanta-based um, commentator on Atlanta United, uh, to give us his take on what Stephen Glass had been up to over the past couple of years. At that point, Glass was a front runner, no more than that, but I think reading between the lines, you could see that uh, he was a serious contender even back then. Here's what Jason had to say. Stephen's done great work here. Um, I'm glad to see him getting the consideration and 
if he is the the answer at Aberdeen, I think you know as you guys know as a, as a player, what he did for the club, I think he would put in every waking hour to make the club a success. I can't think of anybody who works harder than than Stephen Glass at his craft. So he would be a credit to any club he's with. So as it happened, Martin. It was Stephen Glass, and uh, I don't think anybody was overly surprised when that uh, decision came out, but certainly there were questions about the process uh, and about how open and democratic that process had been. Um, Again, looking back, uh, what do you think about that now? Um, Well, firstly, no, got to give you you credit, Richard. No, it was was yourself that it was yourself that called it called it over Stephen Glasswell, the other dickhead on this podcast, was talking about Tony Kumbari and David Wagner. Um, <laughs> so you know, so fair play, fair play. You 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 got that one absolutely spot on. While I was I was um, left scrambling about for other names. Um, one of the questions I think that everybody has, and you know, you can see across social media, there's still a lot of quite bad feeling about it. I mean, when when particularly when Dave Cormack talks about the process. Um, and you know, the, all this kind of stuff and you know, project that he was wanting to bring in. We we heard that there were other other candidates. I think he says there was three other people that, that were you know, outstanding candidates. They wanted a different structure, which kind of leads you to believe that it was always going to be Stephen Glass. Um, you know, I think Stephen Glass had probably been primed as to what the club were wanting to do. He was aware that they were going to be bringing in you know, the director of football you know, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and he was going to be working working alongside that, and that's fine. But I still do think that the you know the, the recruitment process wasn't as open as it could have been. Um, obviously, Cormac isn't going to come out and tell us the names of the people who were outstanding candidates, um, and none of them are bitter enough to come out and say, you know, I applied for the Aberdeen job and was turned down. Fair enough. Um, we're not going to find out. But I don't think I really don't think that the it was as open and honest as it as it could have been. I'm not sure that. You know, Glass was absolutely a hundred percent nailed on to get the job, but when you realise that the club are what the the direction the club are wanting to move in, um, in terms of structure, um, I think that it probably put him as not just a, not just a huge favourite, but he was probably ninety five percent guaranteed it. When you realise that a lot of guys aren't going to work want to work under under that kind of that kind of level of management. Yeah, you say that, but I mean, you know, you'll struggle to find a reasonable sized club that doesn't have that sort of setup now, to be perfectly honest, that has the almost old school British way of giving total authority to the manager. Certain clubs obviously had that and flourished under it for a long time under a quite iconic manager, I suppose you could say, and um, Arsenal Man United are two such examples. Uh, and their struggle in moving away from, you know, that manager with total oversight to a more modern system is is probably in a way mirroring what we're going through a little bit but we are also playing catch up to some of the other teams in this league as well who have adopted this system and I think ultimately it's going to be beneficial it's going to be hopefully implementing a style of play right the way through Aberdeen FC setup right the way from the academy right the way up and I suppose we've seen on a positive basis, we have seen some emerging talent get bursting football this season that um, was a criticism of the end of a Derek McInnes tenure, where there might be a tendency to go and, to go and sign like a Greg Lee for left-back rather than, say, give Jack McKenzie a run of games there at left-back. Now, 
you know, I, I'm not getting carried away with Jack McKenzie's progress. I think he's been solid. He's been good. And ultimately, it comes down to having the having the best first eleven you can. I think ultimately that should still be the role of your first first team coach is to is to get the most successful, get the most entertaining, get the most winning side out there. You shouldn't necessarily be fixated on having to prove the worth of the academy or the money spent there. I mean, you know, I note that we probably now have, for the first time ever, a first team manager who has that as part of his remit to actually introduce youth, to to actually make sure that there is a pathway. And of course, we've lost that record, that 73 year old record of um, graduates from the uh, youth team, from the academy playing in the first team. We shouldn't get too precious about that because it is about winning games as a first team. you can um, tie yourself to an ethos of, of building a club of, of of young talent, of young local talent, and that's what everyone loves to see. But ultimately, what people really want to see is a is a winning football team. The changes in structure were something that were needing to happen. Whether we've got the right people in place, obviously we've named the director of football as well, and and Stephen Gunn has moved up to take that position. And again, we shouldn't necessarily think that our director of football structure is similar to to what we've got elsewhere we shouldn't think that he necessarily has overarching power over the football department and the scouting department you know some of these roles can be more direct more hands-on than others and some of them can be uh, you know much more of a an administrative role which obviously is something that Stephen covered quite a lot in his previous role as well so so we don't know quite how the power structure works within Pataudry but it's interesting certainly that the the, the scouting and the player identification has been pulled away from the manager, the head coach now, because again, that was a pretty frequent criticism was the was the quality of the player recruitment, particularly towards the end of the Derek McInnes reign. But one of the first names that um, was brought in under Stephen Glass wasn't uh, somebody that. Uh, the new player ID team, the new head of recruitment would have identified. It was somebody that everybody in Scottish football knew. It was uh, Scott Brown. How can we put this? It um, certainly furrowed a few brows. It um, got rid of beat up. Some people were delighted to see someone with such a, a track record of winning brought to the club. And other people were unconvinced, particularly given his past relationship and his role in the uh, Tonev Logan affair. When it was confirmed that Scott Brown would be joining, um, we had uh, Chris Crichton of the Red Final on the show uh, to talk through his background. Here's some things that this is not about. It's not about the fact that he's coming from Celtic. Okay, couldn't care less. Not about the fact that he was swaggering about acting the big man in a Celtic midfield. We've got Barry Robson on our staff who also did that, and everyone's perfectly happy with that. Not about the fact that he was and remains, presumably, feeling nasty on the pitch. You know what? Fine. Plenty of people who were like that as players have gone on to be excellent coaches, sometimes specifically because of that part of their nature. Not about that. Not about jealousy. It's not about the fact that he was part of a Celtic team that hoovered up all these trophies in competitions that my team were playing in. Garbage. Anyone who thinks he's got anything to do with that is reducing it, is putting that up as a straw man argument because they know that what it's actually about, they're on the wrong end of. Listen, 
anyone comes to my club with a massive CV of success, of knowing what it takes to win matches. Do I want my team to win on a Saturday? Of course I do. If somebody comes into my team's building and is able to put even 1% on top of their chances to win a game on a Saturday, I'm here for that, okay? This is what it's about. In 2014, a player in the Celtic team made a racist remark on the pitch to a player of my Aberdeen team. He was found guilty of it by an independent tribunal and was given a seven-game suspension for it. After that had happened, Scott Brown and other people from the Celtic organisation, including Ronnie Dyla, came out and said these words specifically, we know he didn't say it. We know he didn't say it. Okay, you can defend people who are friends of yours, who are colleagues of yours. I have no problem with that. You cannot say that you know that he didn't say it because, here's the thing, you don't know. You didn't hear it. Well, listen, that's that was where Chris came from and hard to disagree with it with the sort of moral aspect of it, to be perfectly honest. People had reservations about him as a player as well. And I, I recall, I think it was yourself and Tom, uh, Tom Watt, who were on that show with Chris. And uh, both of you were didn't think that Scott Brown would make the impact that he needed to make as a player at Pitaudry. What do you think now that we've had a few months of him in a red shirt, both individually and, and both obviously the impact on the team? Well, I've said a couple of times so far that I still want, I still would like more from him. He isn't the player that he was. Or that's No, that was without question. No, we aren't going to get, we're not getting the, the Scott Brown of five, six years ago. We were, we were aware of that. I think, I think at times... It's it's hindered us, I think, because he clearly doesn't have doesn't have the legs, and I think I think Lewis Ferguson has had a lot of criticism this season from from sections of support, a lot of criticism, and I think playing I think playing alongside Brown has has hindered him a little bit, and that's something that's that frustrates me because I think Lewis Ferguson is a great player, and but he's probably going to leave, so understandably people are going to be you know in favour of the guy that's here. Yeah, how much of that? How much of that about Ferguson is down to the fact that you know he's made it clear that he wants to not be here. That yeah, never puts I, you I, in good stead with a. Support. Oh no, it doesn't. I absolutely, I absolutely agree with you there. No, it, it doesn't. You know, people, people know that he wants to leave. Obviously, um, you know you can't keep his old man off the radio or out the papers. You know, given it, given the chat about him moving along, all this kind of wee sob stories about wages and stuff like that from that comes from his dad. Um, that's not good, and that doesn't help at all. And you know, so we're, and we're pretty much, I think, every single one of us are resigned that he's going to be leaving probably within the next, you know, thirty days, whatever it is, until the window closes. You're, we've struggled to see the best, the best from him because because he's been playing playing alongside Brown, and Brown is he get he gets the ball, he does all the kind of water carrier stuff. Ironically, the the best stuff we've seen from Brown was I said after it happened and the games that he did it for is when we've seen we saw him move back into defence when he was playing a kind of sweeper role that you used to see back in the day when no when you would get maybe a midfielder whose legs had totally gone, um, you would see them drop back and play like play sweeper or play between no just between the two the two centre backs. Um, I thought he was much better then. Um, I think perhaps his game is more would be more suited to that, but. That was on a that was on a needs must basis. That was because we were, you know, we had, I think we had one fit centre back at the time. Even I think it was actually no fit centre backs really, wasn't it? When he went back there the first time, so I can understand the frustrations. I like I said, I still want more from him. 
Um, he's the no, he is a, he is a good football player. He's the most decorated football player in the history of Scottish football. Um, we're we're right to demand demand more from him. I mentioned it before in here. Obviously, you no, know, it's not important. But he's came in here as a big player. He's earning a king's ransom to be here. He's here to be you no. Know, he's coming in here to be what should be the best player at the club. And he, and I don't think he is. I think he's. I think we've we've seen flashes of what he can do. Um, you know, the header at Ibrox was great. Um, you know, he's obviously he's contributed massively to the set pieces. The kind of player that he is, you know, we've seen some of the kind of the blocks and things that he does. He works with set pieces, clearly works well when Alan Russell's coming up with this kind of stuff. He can clearly, you know, get himself involved with things like that. And so we have seen good stuff. Um, and it would be unfair of me to be all totally negative about him because he has done well at times. We're struggling this season. We've got a new manager, a new staff that are trying to imprint their, you know, their vision onto the club. And when a guy like him, a guy like Brown comes in. You like you would like to think that he'd be he'd be lifting the club, and I don't think he's been doing that. Well, I, of course, you you look at the position right now, and sixth in the table with Scott Brown in the team, and it's you know, uh, when Shea Logan was in the side, we were never as low as sixth in the table at the end of the season. That's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you are maybe still being a little bit harsh on him. There have been times when he's definitely been the best player in a red shirt on the pitch, particularly early in the season. I thought he he played really well. In a few of the European games, I know there was criticism in like the second uh, of the Carabag games, and you know I think that's that's probably fair comment. You know those are the the ties that we we need him to shine in and to show that leadership in, and it just it wasn't really there, and he he was part of a, a ship that sank uh, without any kind of. Uh, real push um, to, to keep it afloat. It just went down far too easily that evening. And um, thinking, you know, back to that time, again, it, 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 it seemed as if Scott Brown and, and, and Stephen Glass were a package along with Alan Russell. It was, it was the idea of having, you know, having these guys that was quite interesting, exciting and able, uh, and something that uh, obviously Dave Cormack could, himself got, got enthused about and could therefore take that out to the support to get enthused about. Because, you know, at the time, Alan Russell was involved in the England team. That didn't last very long, obviously. But uh, but he's he's come on board as well, Scott Brown. And clearly we've seen some invention from set pieces. Um, I don't think we've really seen the, the, the improvement in movement from the, from the strikers that we might have hoped for. Um, I don't know what you think about that. I think no, I think that's right. I mean, we've all been hoping that Ramirez would you know, would really get going and get fire in this season and being supported by, you know, say Hedges, um, obviously there's Marley Watkins as well. Um, dare I say, even Johnny Hayes, you no, know, play because when he's playing in a more 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 you know, sort of forward attacking role, and um, we've not really seen that, and that's something that as as time goes on that will. That will come. I mean, Hedges has obviously you know, had his had his issues. He's probably another one who's going to be leaving anyway. So there's no point in getting too attached to him. Yeah, I mean, we've seen some of the stuff that Alan Russell did. Um, there was a lot of clips going around on social media of his of his work he did with the with the England squad, and particularly some of the drills that we're doing in terms of attacking play, not just set pieces. Um, and they showed the drills and then they showed the showed it being being implemented exactly the same way in games, um, and and it leading to goals. 
it, it'd be interesting to see what what comes from there. I know that with the England squad, he's obviously working with a you know, a slightly higher level of player. We can't discount that, but I think it will be. I, I'm still I'm still quite positive about that. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing you know, what he can do with the, the team. I still think that Stephen Glass probably is probably isn't happy with the the, the squad he has. He's probably looking. For, he's probably got names he wants to bring in. Um, you would assume that he's got some targets in January. Um, probably will definitely have some targets for the summer as well. Then we'll maybe see the best out of the, these guys. I mean, you almost discount the end of last season because it, you know, it was it was a group of you had a group of players there that um, some of them some of them a few of them were going to be leaving. Um, he didn't really wasn't really able to bring in, so you discount that can end the season. So he's only really had you know this six months. But, um, but should so. you? I mean, so much was made at the time of you know Derek McInnes hit his stride in that first season because he had those five games of the season before to make decisions on players and to to get his feet under the table, and you know they truly were dead rubbers in the bottom six and out of the cups. It fucking infuriated me uh, last season, the way in which everything was kind of just written off as, oh, it's all about next season. We still had a Scottish Cup to, to go through there, to go for there. And we ended up putting in one of the limpest displays I ever remember an Aberdeen putting in, uh, an Aberdeen side putting in text at the Scottish Cup, which is saying something, uh, that 3-0 home defeat. You know, essentially to win the Scottish Cup last year, we would have had to beat Dumbarton, Dundee United, Hibs at Hamden, Hibs uh, and St Johnston, and that would have been the path to win the Scottish Cup. Now, even you know Aberdeen teams on form have fucked it up in that situation, but to have given over last year's challenge in that competition and the form we were in, we we're probably never going to do anything anyway. It infuriated me. So the fact that we we I suppose we did hit the ground running at the start of the season, which makes it almost even worse that we haven't really been able to build on that as far as 21-22 goes. But the big story at the start of the season wasn't just the fact that we that we won a few games and looked quite promising. It was the fact that after 15-16 long months, we were back in the stadium. And uh, the first night we were back, it was for the visit of BK Hacken in the Europa Conference League. Uh, uh, they've rebadged that you fool. And this is what we said at the time. About the night itself, I was, I was dubious beforehand. I didn't know how normal it would feel. I didn't know how it would feel. It felt brilliant. I, I used the word reconnection and that's, that's really, it, it felt that way. Absolutely delighted to get back. It's just, it's just emotional being there uh, because we've all we've all missed it so much. Just it shows the importance of the football club. That atmosphere tonight, there's only, what, five and a half thousand people there, but it was a really, really, really good atmosphere. People, you, see, you see how delighted everybody was to be back, back at the games. The performance obviously helped that. It helped that as well, but it was just, it was just so great to be back. I have to say as well, um, I don't think I could be more delighted that the first person to score... Um, a goal after after all this when the crowds are back is Andy Considine. You could not write that. You know, if you were writing some sort of fairy tale about, you know, the kinda you know, the local hero guy's gonna get the, the the opening goal after we've all been finally allowed into stadiums. That is just wonderful. So happy it was him that got that goal. I suppose that resonates a little bit harder, Martin, now given that we're back almost the way we were. Um I mean there were five hundred people there on Boxing Day, so it wasn't a complete lockout, I suppose. But um, 
you know, I spoke about the the five and a half thousand against Hacken that night. It's, it's it's feeling refreshingly normal, and I'm really disappointed, in fact, that we weren't able to to go back to that sort of number for the um, for the Dundee game, um, because you know that felt both safe and close to a normal occasion. But that night, it was just brilliant. It could not have gone better, could it? It, re- it really couldn't have. I mean, it was just, it was the, the, the perfect sort of tonic. You know, I mean, I said after the, I said after the Dundee game, when we covered, did that the other day, just, you know, I absolutely despise watching football in the way we have. Um, you know, I was, I was, I admit, I admit myself, I was overly critical of the game and the performance because after all this, t- after all this time, after the time of being back and being able to go to games, Go back to where we are now is just taking the wind right out of my sails, and that night, finally being back in the stadium, having spent a season, a full, a full season, watching it on, watching it on a laptop or on, it was just brilliant being there. And yeah, it was five thousand, whatever it was in there. You could tell everybody was just delighted to be there. It was, it was a really brilliant atmosphere. Like I said, the clip there it was so good, and it felt like that you hit the nail on the head. It was like a reconnecting with a club, you know. We're we're finally back in the stadiums. Here's this, here's the new new manager, you know, new staff. We're all getting we're all getting you know a, a proper look at these players, particularly you know, we you know anybody who does podcasts and things like that. If you don't go to the games, you're not you're not really getting a a proper you know a proper fix on what's happening. You know, from sitting wherever you sit in the stadium, whether you're sitting in you know the back of the the back of the Dick Donald or you're sitting right on the the touchline in the main stand. You you see the game better. You can appreciate the game more, rather than when you're watching watching it on a laptop where you know you're missing bits and you can't see movement and stuff like that. So it was just it was just so good to be back and be able to sit with people, uh, sit with your mates and have a chat about the game. Dare I say even go for a pint? God forbid, you know. Um, and it was just it was just the best to be back. And it was a bro- it was a brilliant performance. Um, and you know and. The season, you're right to say the season did start well. You know, we'd had that those that result. Obviously, we'd we'd beaten Dundee United. You know, maybe we maybe we got a tiny tiny bit lucky at the game away at Livingston at Almond Vale. Um, but we started the season off pretty strongly, and it was yeah, there was there was every reason to be to be positive. Yeah, I think in the weeks after that, there was a tendency to sort of downplay that hacking result, saying, "Oh, you know, these no hopers from Sweden." But no, no, that was a that was a really impressive result against what could have been a very, very awkward side. You know, even during the course of the evening, I think when they got about to three-one, that they looked likelier to get it to three-two, which would have been very challenging given what happened in the the away game. Uh, but those early European games as a whole, we just felt it just felt great being back in the ground. The, the bread a bit game obviously afterwards we got a little bit of fortune with regards to the draw there and we make it to the playoffs for the first time and there's you know big hope around that we can actually do something and um, obviously we had the first leg and really that'll go down now as a night where we we lost An- uh, Andy Considine for the season um, you mentioned in the clip there that it was so fitting that he should score the first goal when we were all back in the ground, but um, it was the pitch in Baku that uh, they did for him, and has meant that he spent uh, six months in recovery. Just an absolute disaster for him. You know, a season that hopefully he can put you know, be able to put behind him. I think that you know he's he's we saw that he's been running. this saw the club the club have put up some social media clips of him back in back in training. 
but yeah, the, the night in Karabag, the away leg, just you know, what everything that kind of could have, could have gone wrong did. I mean, you lose a guy like Andy Constein. I know there's a there's a kind of wee bit an attitude of just you know, I think that he's he's still he's still a bit underappreciated. Is he Willie Miller or Alex McLeish reincarnated? Absolutely not. But is he a solid player? Will do a job for you and will get will get you through games. Absolutely no. There's a, there is a seems to be an attitude of people like Considine are the reason you know why the club's not gone anywhere. We've not won stuff. It's like absolutely not. It's a nonsense attitude. The the team has struggled without him this season. Joe Lewis has said it himself. You know, Joe Lewis says you know when he was going through a tough time, it's because he was missing somebody like Andy Considine where. You know, Lewis has had Constantine standing in front of him for four seasons, five seasons, whatever it is, and knows exactly what what he was going to do. Uh, we found ourselves really short defensively. You know, Bates has come in, Gallagher's come in. Neither of them have really impressed too much. Whereas you've got this guy, this guy missing, who's been an ever present for seasons, and I think we've, we have really missed him. And that night, the night in Carabag, him going off injured just. Not not too badly, but the season went in a little bit of a tailspin with him getting injured because we found ourselves, you know, scrambling about and we were left short. I think the thing to say about Andy Constantine is that for seven years under Derek McInnes, you can see that that squad was getting built up and built up and, and improvements were being made position by position. You know, he sorted out the right back position, got Shea Logan in there, that was sorted. He sorted out the goalkeeper position, got... Joe Lewis in there after a couple of years and that was that sorted and kept trying to I think to to bring in players who who might be challenging or perceived as an upgrade on on where Andy Considine was playing but ultimately every single time Andy Considine fought his way back into that starting 11 and contributed hugely to a to a side that was fighting at the top end of a table for six or seven years so Andy spent a lot of his time here a lot of his time at Aberdeen and again, you forget he was here, obviously, for the majority of Jimmy Calderwood's years as well, which were, again, at the right end of the table, a little bit too close to the middle of the table uh, too often there. But, uh, you know, the European run he played in a lot of those games. But he's he's been here at times when the club has really struggled, and I think he's almost tainted by that association in some ways. But uh, but no, and he is someone I I think who has who's learned so much. He was there was a naivety about him at times in his early career when he came up against players who were a couple of levels ahead of him, such as his frequently read cards against Celtic. He he, he was just a little bit too eager, a little bit too naive, and he used to get done, and he used to commit fouls and and get sent off and I think that he has learned and he is a much smarter defender now we are definitely unquestionably missing him although some progress has obviously been made with the the Bates and McCrory pairing which uh, which took a while but we are slowly beginning to see the signs of uh, a, a partnership there that might last a season or two um, anyway that early season optimism it, it it didn't last for too long really did it Martin <laughs> Uh, no, it didn't. Um, we went on a we went on a pretty shocking run, didn't we? Um, yeah, it was it was ten games uh, by the end of it without by without a win, and the the Nadir really, I suppose, came at Dens Park. Uh, Dundee, I think, were maybe bottom of the table when we when we met them, but uh, uh, we lost two one. Yeah, just this system. It's just it isn't it isn't working, and it hasn't worked all season. And the worry is that. He's not looking. He's not really 
doing anything drastically different. We've, like you say, we've gone over the personnel. You know, we've gone over the fact you know it could be McCrory or Bates or or Gallagher. You know, obviously, yeah, we've 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 used the sob story excuse about Considine being injured, but we've got we've got professional footballers there who are being asked to play a system, and they're either either they are unable to implement that themselves, or the instructions that they were given on how to implement it aren't making enough sense. Now, the last time we recorded, I think I was, I wouldn't say positive about Stephen Glass, but I felt that he would be given given time. But you lose to St Mirren, you lose tonight in that manner where that was two pretty bad goals to lose again. And the clean sheets is the big, it's the biggest issue. You know, we're, 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 no, I'm not, we're not knocking heaps of goals in, but we're scoring goals. You know, we're able to get up the end and get the ball in the net, but just the, the manner of the goals that we're losing is just it, it it can't go on well it certainly was the fact that um we weren't keeping yeah. them out at one end and we weren't really scoring enough at the other and providing enough of, the, of a threat at the other end it, it looked as if the manager wasn't capable of turning that around quite frankly because it was it was the same setup almost the same personnel every week but then after that game he did switch things. He moved from what had been his tried and tested um, 4-2-3-1 system and he, he switched to a five at the back. And partly that was brought about out of necessity because of the lack of bodies and, you know, wanting to almost protect um, the makeshift defenders that were back there, moving Scott Brown into that back line, as you'd said earlier. But it led to... A much more positive seven days, a win over Hibs, a good performance away at Ibrox, tinged with frustration that we'd let a two-goal lead slip, obviously, and notwithstanding the um, erratic refereeing decision that uh, gave the home side the equaliser that evening. And then a, a really good performance and a win over Hearts, um, which, which really made you think... Right, okay, there's something here. There's something here. A corner has actually been turned. Of course, Aberdeen being Aberdeen followed that up with three straight defeats against um, some of the poorer teams in the league. So, not again, we're at the point, sitting here right now, we've won four out of the last five, but that defeat was a, a very insipid display away at Easter Road. There are clearly some problems to be solved and some hurdles to be overcome. But it, it feels like there is at least a foundation to build on in the second half of the season. When at times, such as after that Dundee game, you felt there was nothing but sand. Yeah. Um, see, when you set, when you sent me the list of the, you know, the the points we were going to cover, this was the one I was looking forward to the most because I knew fine I was going to going to look like a complete a complete and utter hypocrite. I didn't even include how... the out of his depth line. I didn't even include that. <laughs> Uh, no, you sh- you should have because um, I was no, I I I my head was just no through the floor. I was uh, I was just ready to no ready to go, um, ready to throw it all away um, that night. I was devastated. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, this was the point. I, this was the one I was looking forward to the most. Um, just just for how bad it makes me look. To be honest, Richard, this is the fun about doing something like this. It's looking looking back on what we've said and holding our, holding ourselves to account a little bit as well. Because it isn't just people that listen to this that, that think I talk shit, and I think I talk shit as well. Um, so no, we have something in common there. In all seriousness, no, that Dundee defeat was, you know, it, it was bad. Um, it was you know, con- serious concerns. A lot of people had 
had turned, were wanting to be given the boot. He was never going to be, but there were people looking looking for a change already. And I think we looked at the October November fixtures, and it was six matches against basically what was the I think at that time it was the top six. We were genuinely worried. I was genuinely worried. A trip to a trip to Ibrox, as always, will take care of itself. Played against them, you know, we'll be able. To, we should be, should have been able to do something, and we did. We got we got a point. Probably should have had three, but as you mentioned, the referee did did them a favor. Home games against Hibs and Hearts, they kind of take care of themselves as well. Suddenly, you know, the negativity of that bad run. It was a bad run, you know, six defeats. It's not good. We find ourselves, you know, being a bit more positive. Um, I think you look at that, you say the bad run of defeats, and then you go on you know, a run of two wins and a draw, and then you find yourselves losing to Motherwell, Dundee United and Celtic. I think it just, you know, you look at that little spell, and that really kind of sums up the, sums up the season for us. Because we then follow, I think we followed that up with another, I think it was three wins as well. This season is, it is a kind of, it is a rebuilding season. It is, it's about, you know, the manager coming in and imprinting what he wants on the side. And he's going to try new, try things. And yet, he's had to change formations here and there. Um, personnel issues, you know, we've obviously had, you know, the two young fullbacks coming into the squad and then they both get injured. Um is is not ideal, so he's had to try and work with other with you know with what he can. You know we've seen Ojo being played at right wing back now. You know, we've had to see different things here and there, and I think that just it sums up the season so far as where you know we find ourselves. You know we're we're in the top six, not where we want to be. We want to be hot. We obviously want to be higher. We should be higher. The manager, you know, if he can find that consistency, hopefully we'll find ourselves even further up the table. And I think that. I'm as guilty of anyone as doing it of just when a bad result happens, just bringing the negativity to the fore, and it's probably probably wrong. Oh, okay then. You talk about a transition season, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We're sixth right now. Would that be an acceptable finish in a transition season, assuming we, you know, we don't go and win the Scottish Cup, obviously? I mean, are you um, looking forward to a League Cup group stages that much? That you're... no, no, <laughs> absolutely not. I mean. It goes without saying, I want us to win every game. I want us to finish high up, as high up the league as possible. The last three seasons, we've finished fourth, which further backs up why the previous manager was replaced. I, I said a couple of weeks ago, I said, no, this this group of players that we find ourselves with now, without without knowing what's going to happen in the, the January window, this group of players, I think, is good enough to finish fourth. I said it, no. Would I be happy with fourth? No. But would I accept it? Probably um, as in, in a transition season. So you'd accept fourth, but not sixth. Because fourth is where we've been. Yeah, I, you, know? you know my position on this, that the, the placings aren't quite as important as the points tally. No. When Kilmarnock finished above us because they got 69 points or whatever it was, and we were on 68, then you know, I, I'm prepared to look upon that a lot more kindly than when Motherwell finished ahead of us and we were on target for 55 or 54 points. And again, it's not going to be, I don't think, much more than that that we get this year. I think it's going to look, unless things turn around really dramatically in the second half of the season, which we all hope, um, you're probably looking at a a sort of mid-50, maybe lower 50 point total. Um, And really, that's 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 what it comes down to as an Aberdeen manager. I, th- I think that you can only control so much about your league position, but you can control how many points you yourself accumulate. 
And I think any Aberdeen manager that gets up to the high 60s is doing an okay job. Um, if you get up into the 70s, you're, you're starting to do a good job. And if you can get up to the high 70s, you're actually giving yourself an outside chance of winning the league. But it needs that. And, you know, we've, we've never done that. 76 is the highest so far. And it's it's just about trying to build on that and reach those levels. Um, but right now, um, yeah, lower targets need to be set. And I suppose the lowest of the low targets is guaranteeing European qualification. Yeah. Of course, we'd all like to see us win the Scottish Cup, but I feel we're getting a little bit like Dundee fans with that right now, to be honest. <laughs> um, it's been a long time. Uh, at least the, the pictures are in colour as opposed to black and white. There is that. Anyway, anyway, that was 2021, which, as I say, was relatively seismic in terms of Aberdeen's recent history, which has been pretty steady. Certainly the first time since we started this uh, podcast back in 2015 that we've had a change of manager. Um, you know, I hope we, we covered that um, in the detail that it required at the time. Obviously, we've been doing a lot of the debriefs immediately after full time, and I really, really hope that we'd seen the end of those <laughs> until we were obviously back on back on Boxing Day doing doing that one for a Dundee game. Um, if I have a hope for 2022, Martin, it's not just the Scottish Cup, but it's also that we never have to do another debrief because we've been locked out of the game. Um, so there you go. That's my twin hope for 2022. What, what, what are you looking for in 2022? When did we start this podcast? 2015. Um, well, my, my, hope for, my hope for the season remains the same as it always will be. It's a Scottish Cup. Simple as that. Oh, you're a simple man, Martin. Nothing much changes with you, and that's nope. uh, why we like having you. Um, okay, that was our show for this evening. That was a look back on what happened in 2021 for the Dons. We'll be back throughout 2022, uh, trying to keep track of what happens with our football team in the next 12 months. Until next time, come on you Reds.